In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is talking about converts. We have a lot of information in the Bible about a lot of different things, but this particular chapter focuses on people that we're able to reach and teach, at least in the section that we're talking about. As you back up a little bit, we've gotten down now to verses 14 and 15. In the beginning of the chapter, Paul told the Corinthians that they were not spiritual people, they were carnal. We talked about the fact that one planted, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was the one who gave the increase. And then as we get down a little further into the chapter, he talks about in verse 10 how he was a master builder and the church, it was founded by Christ, but different people like Paul, Apollos, Peter, and others, each person was building on the foundation uh, that Jesus had created. And then we finished up with verse 13 last time. Paul said, each man's work, and that means evangelistic work, each man's personal work shall be made manifest or clear for the day that will be the end of time shall declare it because it is revealed by fire and the fire itself shall prove each man's work of what sort it is. He says, and then in 14 and 15, if any man's work shall abide, again, what kind of work is that? What kind of work will abide? All right, that spiritual, that evangelistic work, work of as far as converting people, if those converts shall abide, that um, he's, he's built on the right foundation, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work, again, personal evangelism is in context there, shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Those verses, especially as you go back and you look at the preceding information, they are fairly self-explanatory. If a man's work, that is the people that he converts, if they abide, if they stick with it, if they do not head off into error, if they do not leave the faith, then Paul says at the end of time, the person who was involved in converting those people, what will he or she or they receive? They're going to be, shall we use the word entitled? They're going to receive a, they're going to receive a reward. So as you look at this, you have, I think, a good cross-reference back in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. As Daniel comes to the end of that book, he talks about the fact that those who turn many to righteousness, that is, people who point a number of people to God, he says they will shine like the stars. Uh, and we've got a couple of the passages that we can tie in with that and, with that, and we'll do that in a little bit. Uh, but I do want to pause here for just a second. I do not uh, want to leave the impression that the only fruit that a person can bear is evangelistic fruit. When we think about fruit bearing, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And I've heard sometimes over the years people say, well, the only fruit that you can bear for God is evangelistic fruit. That's not true. There are a lot of fruits that people can bear. There are a lot of things that people can do. Uh, there does seem to be, as far as having some role, some responsibility, if you will, as far as evangelizing people, God takes that very, very seriously because, you know, it's one thing you, you help somebody out because their house has been, been burned by a fire. Is that a good thing? Yes. All right, would you say that that would be fruitful? Yes. But is that going to help them in eternity? I mean, you could buy them a new house and you could um, furnish a house and you could do all kinds of wonderful things for them, but if they spend eternity in hell at least from the eternal perspective, they've not, they've not been helped. But what happens if you can't help the guy rebuild his house and you can't help him put new possessions back in it, but you can help him find the truth and salvation? Have you helped him eternally? Yes. So uh, we can bear a lot of different forms of fruit. Now, before we go too much further with this, I do want to say this as well. When you think about Noah, for example, and this is a little bit of a trick question, so think carefully about it before you answer would you say that Noah bore really in any evangelistic fruit? And I'm not talking about the people on the ark. All right, some would say no. How many think no? 
You always don't like those questions and you have to raise your hand, do you? All right. How many people think that Noah did bear some evangelistic fruit? I'm going to put myself in that category. Now, if you raise your hand this time, why would you say that? Yes, he did. But if we, we bring this a little closer to 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's talking about these converts that abide. They continue. They're actually people who get on board with God's program and they stick with it. So, well, yeah, we've got the people. We've got the people on the ark who are saved, but the rest of the world is lost. So as far as looking at everything that we can look at as far as Noah, moving a little bit past what Betty laid a foundation for, would you say that Noah had any evangelistic fruit? Fred? I think there have been a whole, a whole bunch of people since he died that have learned from his evangelism. By him? By his example. Oh, there you go. And that's it. It wouldn't be that he personally did that because we know what happened. You've only got eight people in the ark. Everybody else is outside of the ark. So only eight people. And you know he surely had good influence with those other seven. But when we think about his life, his example, what's written about him, he has saved some people through that means. When we think about this, it's really easy to, I think, go through life, and this kind of depends on when and where you live, maybe at what age you become a Christian. People can say, uh, you know, there have been some preachers who baptized thousands of people. Um, even in recent times, there have been some fellows who have died within probably the last 20 years. If you look at what their list of accomplishments, they would say he baptized 10,000 or he baptized 20,000 people. Now, a couple things about that. Out of those ten or 20,000, do you think that all of them abided, all of them remained faithful? No. All right. I think that's almost a guarantee. Uh, it doesn't matter if you baptize 100,000. If only two remain faithful, then you really haven't accomplished anything as far as any benefit uh, spiritually. So uh, there are some people who do that, and they're, it's direct contact through preaching, through teaching, through maybe uh, they're doing something with TV, radio, Internet, whatever that may be. They, they do contact those people. Uh, it's maybe not one-on-one, -on -one, but there is sort of face-to-face -face contact, and there are conversions because of that. But would you also say that there are less direct forms of conversion, bearing in mind what Brian said about Noah? Yeah. And how might those work? Yeah. Yeah, and there are a lot of ways to plant that seed. Maybe it's through a child. Maybe it's through an example, as we think about Noah. You remember uh, the book of Philippians, Paul talked about the partnership that you have with me in the gospel. Who was the one who was going out and doing the preaching? Who wrote the letter to Philippians? the Philippians? It's Paul. So Paul is the one who's going out and, and, and doing the evangelistic stuff, but what makes that possible? All right, the people who were supporting him. Uh, Tim gave a really good analogy after class last week. He was talking about farming. And he made the point that you've got a lot of different people doing a lot of different things on a farm, and everybody has to do their part if the farm is going to work well. And that's a great illustration, and we're going to see that a little, a little later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As far as the body or the farm, it has many parts, and all those parts have to cooperate. Um, when you think about evangelism, uh, I think sometimes we underestimate maybe the good that we do. Um, you know, from maybe supporting a school of preaching like we do here and some other things. Yes, we're not on a foreign field. Yes, we may never see the school. Yes, we can't do this and we can't do that, but we can do something else. And we do have a hand in that. I don't know how God's going to sort all that out at the end of time. 
But I do know, for example, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 41, and this is an intriguing passage. Jesus said, he that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive what? Anybody remember? A prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. So there, as far as God's system, both of punishment and of rewards, he does have a system for each. That system seems to have a lot of different parts. There do seem to be different levels, different degrees, if you want to use that word. And when it comes to rewards, um, so there is a reward that would tie in with evangelism. And how that's going to work as far as whether we were directly involved or less directly, I don't know, but that certainly is affirmed in a lot of different ways. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 14 and 15, I'll say a little bit more and then see if you want to add anything. He says, if any man's work shall abide, which he shall build thereon, again, you're going to receive reward, reward for that, just like we talked about. But if any man's work shall be burned, he's going to suffer what? He's going to suffer loss. Loss of what? Loss of reward. Now, how does that work exactly? Once again, God has not explained all the details. But if you, this is trying to put a heavenly truth into earthly language. But if you start out with um, a thousand converts, that's the number of people that you have reached directly and indirectly in life. And then there's another fellow, he's also started out with a, a thousand converts. And uh, the first one, 800 of his converts have been lost through whatever reason, not through death. They simply became unfaithful or fell into error. So he lost 800. The other guy, though, only loses 100. Based on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, does it appear that those two will experience something? I mean, they, but they both get salvation. But does it, does it seem that they're going to experience something in eternity that's a little different from each other? The guy who lost 800 is going to suffer a loss of reward. Now, exactly what does that mean? I don't know. The fellow who only lost 100, though, would seem to have um, a more enhanced reward. Now, people from the human perspective could say, well, I'm going to be jealous, I'm going to be envious of him because he got more, he had more than I do. I don't see it that way. I don't think it is that way. Going back to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 41, again, a prophet has his reward. The righteous man has his reward. Here is a person who is able to convert many directly or maybe indirectly. Uh, so God will sort that out at the end of time. And the good news, uh, I think for anybody who has any lingering questions about that, is in the middle of verse 15. If any man's work or convert shall be burned, they're not going to stick with it. Uh, that will be taken into account on the day of judgment. He will suffer loss, but he himself shall be what? He is going to be saved. So if you can, if you converted a million people in your life somehow, and all million of your converts were lost, God says, what's going to be true on the day of judgment? You were an awful failure. You converted a million people, but everybody, be like the guy who goes out, uh, and thankfully this isn't the way the work world works. Suppose that you are the hiring manager, and you, you have to hire 50 people a year on average. All 50 people that you hire for the first year are awful. I mean, they are terrible. They are the worst employees in the county and maybe even in the entire state. How long do you think you're going to be employed if that's the kind of people that you're bringing into the company? Well, you might not make it through the first year. If you do make it through the first year, you're probably not going to get very far. You're not going to probably be promoted because, you know, they want good quality people. Well, can you imagine here is someone who tries to bring people to God and it turns out that they end up being a bunch of rejects. 
how's God going to treat me? I mean, I've brought these people to him and said, God, these are some people that, you know, I have found. I've tried to show them the right way. And these are members of church. But if they're people like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you know, fornicators and thieves and covetous and idolaters and revilers, all those kinds of people, God says, I'm going to take care of them, but it's not on you. You shall suffer loss, but you're still going to be saved. Carol? Yes, yes, that is exactly right. And that's one of the points that we would extract from these verses. God says you take care of yourself and an appropriate reward will be given at the right time. Anybody else? We'll just pause there for a little bit. Dolores and then Brian. I want to be real careful how I say this. Okay. <laughs> but you mentioned the woman from Asbury in your sermon. Yes. Now. You know, she couldn't possibly have saved anybody. Yeah. Yeah, right. There are a lot of things in life that both the devil and God can use to move people in a certain direction and get people to a certain destination. Now, um, let's say that I do something that moves you to salvation. Brian does something that moves Sherman to salvation. All right, I'm the non-Christian. All right, even though maybe as an atheist, I do something that moves you to become a faithful member of the church, there is, as far as I can tell, no spiritual benefit to me as an atheist. But if Brian, as a Christian, does some things or lives in such a way where he motivates Sherman to become a Christian, then we would apply what we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, assuming that Sherman does not fall off the wagon, so to speak. He, um, that would be Brian, does get some kind of, I don't like to use the word credit, but that seems to be the easiest way to express the thought. Uh, he does, does get some kind of credit. So you do see those pieces being shifted and it's like putting together a puzzle. The devil's trying to put together as many puzzles as he can. God is doing the same kind of thing. And here we have a little um, additional insight on that and some encouragement for the people who are, you know, uh, thinking about evangelism. So very good. Brian? Uh, in Matthew 20, as a parable day, man goes out and hires at different times a day. Yeah. Uh, everybody gets the same reward. How do you, and what's the right way to understand that parable so that it doesn't conflict with what's here? Okay, I think what you have there is Jesus is telling the apostles, look, well, let me ask, ask it in a question form first. When you think about the apostles of Christ and you look at them in terms of that parable, would you say that they were hired at daybreak or they were hired at 5 p.m.? 
Yeah, I think everybody would come to that conclusion because he picks them and trains them and then they're the ones who get the spirit uh, as far as baptism. So they're the five o'clock folks. But what happens as we, we look, for example, to the book of Acts? Daybreak, it's the apostles, but when it comes to 9 a.m., who's probably coming in then? And I'm not trying to make this overly literal. I'm just trying to kind of think through it. Who would you say comes in at 9 a.m.? Hmm? Well, I'm thinking maybe even the Jews on the day of Pentecost, oh, okay. Acts chapter 2. Then we come down to 3 p.m. Who would you say possibly is there? Yeah, very good. Uh, Betty, was that you? Okay, very good. Acts chapter 10, we've moved now about 10 years into the future, and then you get down to the end of the day, so to speak, and who would you say comes in? All right, we're thinking now about the super pagans. So, and Cornelius was very religious, but we're going to go out there. Uh, so Jesus uses that teaching. It's a, it's a magnificent teaching to say that there are going to be all kinds of people who come in. Now, people being people, let's just use Peter since he's kind of impetuous. Can you imagine what Peter might have been thinking and asking? Oh, God, what about me and Jesus? I was the one who what? Yeah, that was the first thing that came to my mind. I was the one who jumped out of the boat, right? I was the one who did what? Confession. All right. I was the one who made the confession. It was revealed to me about Jesus being the Son of God. I was the one that went where? Transfiguration. All right. I was the one who was there at the Transfiguration. Who was the preacher, featured preacher on the day of Pentecost? Oh, God, it was me. Well, Peter's already asked some thoughtful questions, sometimes maybe some thoughtless questions, but should I give my brother, you know, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times. So you can imagine, and didn't the apostles have some issues as far as who was going to be first, who was going to be greatest? Wasn't there a mom who came along and said, hey, I got two boys. Would you do this for me? Put one where? On your right? Put my other son where? On your left. So these guys, they had some issues as far as competitors. So Jesus gives his teaching to say, fellas, guess what? When it comes to the kingdom, you might have started at daybreak, but guess what? You think Cornelius could have been just as good a Christian as Peter? Or John? Or Matthew? What about those wicked, evil pagans? Could they live lives which would please God just as well as the converts on the faith? Yes. So Jesus has to lay down, it's really, I think, the same message that we have in Galatians chapter 3. For in Christ there is what? There is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor male, nor female. No, there are differences, obviously, but he's saying you're on the same spiritual footing. I do not think that that is, uh, as far as, it's, it's a reward issue there. I think it's a matter of coming into the um, service of God. Okay, that it? Okay, let's go back and see what else we've got here. The key point is faithfulness to God. You see that at the end of verse 15, and God says multiple blessings if you are willing to do that. The unfaithfulness of others is not going to affect our salvation. As kind of a side note, you could possibly apply that to one of the questions that comes up. Somebody says, well, so-and-so baptized me, but I found out the guy was a thief. I found out the guy was doing this, that, or the other things uh, that were really bad. And I'm just not sure that my baptism is good. Well, what would we find here? It really doesn't have to do, it's, it's irrelevant. If you were baptized for the right reason, if you were serving God correctly, you are in good shape. So, uh, there is no connection, if you will, from the convert to the one who did the converting. There can be a benefit for that, but if one is lost, that's not going to have any impact on the other. And we would think that the same kind of reasoning would also apply to baptism. 
We've talked about Noah a little bit. His work was preaching, building the boat, trying to save the people in his day and time. And yet, when most of the people rejected his preaching, what did God do for Noah? He, he saved him. And everything turned out fine, and he is presented in the Hero of Faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. All right, as you look at verse 15, we've got the image of fire being introduced. Now, the NIV um, says, if you look at it, as one escaping through the flames. Well, that sounds exciting, but that's not a very good expression of the text. We're talking about here uh, flames in the sense of um, an image for, for judgment at the end of time, checking people out, examining people. When you test something by fire, for example, if you expose some metals to high heat, what are you doing? What's the word dross mean? All right, you're, you're purifying. You're trying to extract the things which are not the element that you want. There's going to be a, a separation. And that's how God pictures judgment. Uh, he uses the image of fire to say that things are going to be exactly as they are. Now, here is another great illustration, slightly off topic, but here's another great illustration where people have an idea and they want to prove that idea. They want to substantiate that idea by some passage in the Bible. So they run over to verse, in this case, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, where we've got some information about fire and judgment, and they say, aha, here is proof for what denominational teaching. Fire and judgment. But it's not a biblical teaching, it's a denominational teaching. Found in at least two religious groups, the Greek Orthodox Church, and the Catholic Church? What would the doctrine be? That you can purgatory. There we go. That's the key word. I'm just going to stop you right there. The doctrine of purgatory. We've all heard of it. Let's go back and think about it just a little bit. Uh, purgatory is a place where you go and you experience temporal punishment. Generally speaking, if someone talks about purgatory, they would say you are not at peace with the church. We should stop right there because that's a problem, isn't it? You do want to be at peace with the church, with fellow members, but really the peace that a person needs to have is peace with whom? Peace with God. So if you're at peace with God, you're going to be at um, peace with your brethren. These groups would affirm that when a person dies and they are uh, not ready for heaven, that they enter to the place called purgatory, and once you've been purged from your sins, then you're going to be allowed to go to heaven. It's further taught, and I'll give you some quotes here, uh, that purgatory suffering varies in intensity, it varies in duration, and that's because people have varying degrees of sin. It also supposedly varies because people do not always have the same degree of repentance. Now, you can cause someone or something to obey, can't you? Can I get you to obey me if you don't want to? Uh, very likely. You know, I can grab your arm and twist it, take it behind your back. And I can drive you to your knees, I can make you cry, I can make you scream, I can make you beg, and if I tell you I want you to bark like a dog for five minutes, you think chances are you comply at some point? I twist your body up like a pretzel, I mean, you'll be barking up a storm, you give me ten minutes. But that's not what? That's compliance, but that's not what? That, that's forced compliance. So when you think about the doctrine of purgatory, if there's going to be this, this suffering for a period of time until you finally repent. No, it's not repentance. It's what? Coercion. It, it's coercion. It's like someone says, well, I'm going to do this until you say uncle. 
And that's really the idea, that's really the doctrine of purgatory. God's going to turn up the screws on you. And then finally, when you've had enough, you say, well, okay, God, I'm, I'm truly sorry for my sins. No, you're not. Now, there could be someone who would finally come to that conclusion, uh, but that, that's just not how it works. Purgatory, if you talk to the people who believe in it, the people who teach it, they would say that that could last for just a few hours, perhaps. It could also last for thousands and thousands of years. But the people who are on the earth are told sometimes that they are able to help purge the sins of someone who's died, perhaps a loved one, and they can do that purging through what means? Our, it always goes back to the money, right? You give us enough money, and what will we do for you or your loved one? We're going to pray, and we're going to pray them out of purgatory, and there are, of course, the religious services, uh, which are generally referred to as the masses or a mass. If you do that, then supposedly that's going to um, reduce your time in purgatory. Now, there is a reference in the book of Second Maccabees, Second Maccabees chapter 12, verses 39 through 45, that actually does refer to purgatory. So if you were looking for any kind of uh, writing, any kind of statement about that, the Maccabees are considered historical books. I don't know that anybody would re really refer to them as holy books, uh, but you can find that one reference there. But Christians, people who are familiar with the Bible, object, and I would hope strenuously object to purgatory for a number of reasons. First of all, it puts the responsibility for sin on whom? At least to some degree. Yeah, because if... Uh, Carol, you spoke up, so I'm just going to use you. If she's suffering in, pur in purgatory... Um, you know, and I decide that I'm going to pay money to someone and, and have prayers for, really then who's taking responsibility for the sin? It's me. And it's going to be either the prayers that I make or the prayers that I pay for that will get her out of that painful place. You have, and that, that is contradictory with Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the soul that sins it shall die. People, you know, um, Romans 14 and verse 12 are responsible for their own sins. All right, there's another issue with that that's even bigger. What's the problem? Yeah, uh, you know, how do you know exactly when enough is enough? I think that's a little fuzzy. They just kind of keep you, stringing you along as the old expression goes. There's that issue. Anything else that comes to mind? It's a physical, it's a physical something or a spiritual condition. Yes, there is that as well. Remember Peter said, First Peter chapter 1, about verses 18 and 19, we've not been redeemed by silver and gold but by the precious blood of the Lamb. So it is a spiritual problem that needs to be dealt with in a spiritual way. It is not a problem which we can deal with from a material perspective, right? Well, Jesus is good yeah, that's, that's right. And that is probably going right to the heart of the issue. Uh, because Christ died, you know, we talk about the atonement, we talk about being justified by his blood, and if I have to go and pay money, if I have to go and have someone who is a man pray for the release of someone's soul out of purgatory, then we're saying that about the blood of Christ, that the sacrifice somehow was not enough. There's some other issues too. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, are we saved by human merit? We just do enough good works and God says finally, okay, you've hit the magic number and the thermometer bulb is high enough now, you're good. No, he says we cannot be saved by works. Yet when we think about purgatory, that's exactly what we are um, either being told or what people are trying to accomplish. The Bible, when you look at it, it says that to be in a right relationship with God, we need to prepare before death or some things can be done after death. It's got to be done before. Now, if the Bible teaches that, and it does in a lot of different places, then you have to raise the question, this idea that something can be done for someone after death, where does it come from? 
it is certainly not in the Bible, at least the inspired books of Scripture. What about that little issue that we have over there in Luke chapter 20, uh, Luke 16 and verse 26? We've got two men, right? There's the rich man and there is the fellow who is poor, and his name, Carol said correctly, is Lazarus. What separates the two guys? There's a gulf. Does the rich man want to get out? He does. And what's he told? Just have your rich relatives pray? Pay some money? You, you can't. You're stuck here. Uh, again, there was no hope for that man. And our hope is only in this life. So you have to ask, are we going to believe Jesus in the Bible, or are we going to ask some man who is considered to be a priest by the world? When Paul speaks of fire in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 and 15, he's not talking about fire to purge the soul. It is, as we've affirmed, it is a way to describe the testing of a Christian's work. You have, for example, too, in verse 13, I think this little difficulty. Let's take a look at that. He says, each man's work shall be made manifest for what? For the day. Well, that seems to point to a particular time, a particular set of circumstances, and that is right, the day of judgment or the day of sentencing. He says the day shall declare it because it is revealed in fire, and the fire on that day is going to establish things. So um, it can't describe the continuing fire in purgatory. Anything that you want to add or ask before we move down to verses 16 to 17? Gary? I may have just been led as Um, it's always good to talk to groups and sometimes even if you do there can be some varied beliefs just like the church but I do think that at least most of them would affirm that there is repentance that's involved in the process it is because I mean if it were um, remember purgatory is kind of de- it's like a two-edged sword it's designed to refine but if you don't repent you're not going to be refined but there's also the payment process and I think a lot of people forget about the the two parts to that. It's more, we'll just pay and we'll have the prayers made. And if they were thinking about, as I said before, uh, their loved one or the person that they, they want to get out, supposedly, um, that the person who's going to repent. For, for example, um, how many years ago did Hugh Hefner die? Five? Remember his death? I think he was around 90. I believe he's been gone about five years. Um, can you imagine that he would repent now remember, he might have some regrets, obviously. A lot of people have regrets. But Second Corinthians chapter 7 says that regret and repentance are two different things. Regret simply means what? Speeding to class tonight and what happened? We got pulled over and I, I, I regret being 20 miles. Now, we didn't get pulled over. I didn't even drive. But anyway, uh, we, we regret going 20 miles faster than we should have. So we, we regret the experience. But the person says, I repent, that means what? I'm never going to, at least, you know, when you're out on duty... Uh, or when we're coming down that way again, we're not going to do that. We're going to change our behavior. So do you, every person's different, but would you think that uh, Hefner would now look at his life and say, I repent? You really think so? I mean, he has regrets, obviously. And he might regret it to the point where I would regret and I would do some other things perhaps, but he would really, really repent and say, I want to live a Christian life. But to say, I would want to come back and I would want to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Why is it enough fire and brimstone? I think I would, but 
But but you, are you back there to a a? No, no. Uh, uh, yeah, you're right. Is, is it back? Be, is, would a person make that decision because they have true repentance, or was it be co coercion? And that's why I asked that question earlier. I twist the screws on you so badly that you say, "Oh yes, I will change my life now." But that radical behavior is that truly consistent with the kind of heart that Jesus talked about. I guess that's a question. And there might be some people who do that. I would suspect, though, that a lot of people, they just hate the circumstance so much. It would be like the person, maybe, um, you know, he goes to the doctor and the doctor says, you're going to die. You're going to die within six weeks unless you start changing your eating habits. Now, does the person instantly love cabbage and spinach? <laughs> You're strange. At least I'm eating part of it. But, but let's say that you hated it, though. These foods make you vomit. These foods, to see them, they just turn your stomach. Now, for that kind of person, it would be very difficult to say, I love. Now, you might say, okay, I'm going to eat it. You know, I'm going to close my eyes, and we're going to mix it up with some other healthy stuff and, and, and turn it into the best smoothie ever. So you might do some extreme things, but to actually go from this to this, for at least most people, I think would be very difficult. All right, Gary. It seems to me the idea of purgatory is more consolation for those on this side than on the other. Yeah. Because, you know, oh, really, they weren't that bad. Let's, you know, they deserve better than this. So let's make up a theory that we can get them where they want, where we want them to be. Yeah. Human beings are interesting creatures for a lot of reasons, one of which is after the fact. There are a lot of ways to illustrate this. What happens after an accident? Especially if it was your fault. If only, right, we want to be the quarterback. If only we had left five minutes later, five minutes earlier, if only I hadn't turned in here, we want to go back and fix things after the fact. But we can't. The ultimate demonstration of that would seem to be eternity. I have messed up, or I know that you've messed up. So there surely must be some option that we can use to fix that. You know, we've got body shops for cars, and we've got doctors for bad health choices and all kinds of things. But that is the one thing that we can't fix, either personally or have somebody um, intervene on our behalf. But it's a comforting thought, if indeed that would be true. And you can imagine why people would be very interested in that. I mean, the, the fellow in Luke chapter 16 knew, for whatever reason, that he had no options. But he's trying to fix things for the people who are still left on the earth. And God says, it's just not going to work. Betty? I'm thinking that I could draw a parallel to that, and I, I realize that that may not have completely convinced everybody, but a parallel to that as far as the health illustration. Go to the doc, and the doc says, hey, look, you know, six weeks, you're going to be dying, you're dead unless you start eating all this green stuff. 
All right, I may not do that, but what might I do? That's right. I might tell, hey, family's got to go on a brand new diet. You know, um, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to continue to eat what I want to eat, and I'll be dead in six weeks. But I want the good things to happen for you. So this is this is a change that we have to institute. And I think there um, could be some strong parallels to that. Now, again, there may be some cases where some people would actually do uh, what they do. And even in those cases, for that to happen, it's too late for them because they've made the choice in eternity. But generally speaking, people have regret, and that's why Paul focused on that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and there is not true repentance. True repentance is a lot rarer than regret. Uh, let's, Tim, you're after somebody else. I thought. Oh, it's Steve. I'm sorry. There you are. It's interesting that when you think about, I'm just going to try to tie those two comments together, when you think about what happens with Jesus and the cross, two thieves, right? Would you say that one had repentance? He at least has regret, and it does seem that he's sorry. We don't know exactly what he did, but the other one, what about him? He probably had regrets that he got caught, but as far as any form of repentance, it seems like he just joins in with the crowd and, um, you know, hey, you know, I got caught, my time is up, and and that's it. Um, but the crucifixion, as bad as it was, it was limited for a set period of time. And when we think about eternity, again, it just seems like it's just so final that people, they, they will not repent. It's just, I made my choice and, you know, um, Hefner to go back to him. It's just hard for me to believe that if people, um, you know, they might, through coercion, um, you know, come back, if they could come back, live differently. But to actually say, I love God now, I seek God now, it's hard for me to envision that. Tim. I, excuse me. Uh, I used to smoke about 50 years ago, a little over 50 years ago. And my dad, when he found out that I had started smoking, he was trying to get me not to smoke. But he smoked. But his constantly telling me he didn't want me to smoke or what could happen to you, didn't work because he kept smoking in front of me. Mm-hmm. And so that wasn't, you know, I love him still, but that was a poor example for me because kids, by and large, they do what their parents do. Yeah. They learn, the first things they learn, they learn from their parents. So the example we set before people is the, probably the number one thing that we can do to help them. We want to help them. That's the number one thing. And we can get them interested in the Bible. We can get them reading the Bible. We can, if we're knowledgeable enough ourselves, we can help them understand parts of the Bible that we understand. But if we don't want them to do something that's not good for them to do, then we shouldn't be doing it either. And a lot of people don't understand that. Jews, God gave the Jews more than one chance of straightening themselves out. And there were millions of 
Jews at the time they were incarcerated by the Egyptians. But as soon as things started looking good for them, thanks to God, they turned their back on them. Well, the example is number one. Yeah, it is. And I think going back to what Dolores said earlier in our discussion as far as using the two of you, Brian and I, yeah, pieces are moving. You know, people are being headed in a lot of different directions. Parents, I mean, the Bible says train up a child in the way that he should go. That was addressed to parents. So parents have a big part as far as molding and shaping, certainly in the formative years, and even in the later years. Mom and dad can still have a pretty significant degree of impact on young people. And that happens with evangelism as well. The people that we interact with, if they know that we're a Christian, we are, generally speaking, either going to be pushing them towards Christ, and maybe not very far. We might be just, you know, an inch over their entire lifetime, or we might be pushing them away. And it might be that the pushing away part is not just an inch, but it is dozens and dozens of feet. And if we're in that category, we're doing the very bad thing. So um, you're exactly right. Anybody else? Okay, let's take a look. We've got about seven minutes left and at least get started with verses 16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 3. He continues with, Know ye not that ye are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwell within you. If any man destroy the temple of God, him shall God destroy, but the temple of God is holy and such are ye. You may remember that Paul has already described the church under at least two different figures. He's compared the church to that cultivated field. Remember we talked about the weed patch? That's not like the church. Then we've talked about this field that would be um, a place where someone would want to grow good vegetables. They'd be out there weeding. They'd make sure that the crops had plenty of water, maybe add some fertilizer. And we've also seen earlier in this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9, the church is also compared to a building. Paul's also talking about the church, but this time it's not just a building. He says the church is what? It is... All right, it is a temple. It is the temple of God. Now, the church is a subject of Old Testament prophecy. We hope to start doing some things as far as the book of Zechariah for a little bit. And in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, we have there one of the promises about the New Testament church. About 500 years before Jesus came into the world, uh, so Zechariah is not too far from um, you know Malachi. He's getting to the end of the Old Testament era as far as the prophets. About 500 years before Jesus comes into the world, Zechariah promises that a temple, he promises that the church, uh, which we know as the one built by Christ, was going to be established. When we start looking at that church, we have it described in a lot of different ways. It is described as not only the temple, but the kingdom, the body, the house, the bride, or even the true tabernacle. We've got it in different books. In the next letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, Paul's going to talk about the church some more. We've got the church over in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. If someone were to say to you, uh, look at the temple over there, you would probably expect some kind of building. In the New Testament, though, if somebody said there's a temple, uh, you have two different words used to describe the temple. There would be, for example, a word which we would... I guess say that this would be our word. There was a word which described the physical structure. If you're going by, you would say, okay, look at the temple over there. There's a temple to Buddha or there, there's uh, the temple that used to be for Aphrodite, you know, um, back in Rome and it's no longer there. But there was a second word which occurs in the New Testament at different times. And this is a word which describes the inner part or we might say the sanctuary, the holy place for the temple. Um, you know, I can remember one time being in an Islamic mosque in a foreign country. We were invited to come in 
and, and uh, speak to some of the people who were there, or at least listen to some of the things that they had to say. It was kind of a joint matter. Uh, but anyway, we uh, looked at the outside, and I mean, there are no guards out there or anything, and you could walk up, you could open the door. But once you got so far in, uh, I understood that to be their, their sacred place, their special place, their holy place. You had to take the shoes off, and then there were some special rules. We have things like that today. A person will say, okay, you know, kind of come on in. But once you get to this section, what's true? We've got some different rules, right? You know, don't touch the things in here. For example, you can go into a museum and maybe you've had that experience. You can walk in the door and everything is fine and you can touch, you know, the displays and, you know, this and that. But then you get to a certain area and what, what do they say? They've got guards in there and they say, yeah, there's no flash photography and you can't touch it. Or maybe they say, don't make any loud noises. They, they have special rules. So when we have 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Know ye not that you are a temple. Which word do you think he's talking about there? You're that outside structure that, you know, no big deal, or you are the inner uh, sanctuary where there is no photography allowed. You're in that intersection. We can obviously take pictures in the church, so no problem with that as far as updating the directory. Okay. Um, we've got here as far as, let's take a, okay, I guess about 10 more minutes. Uh, we've got here, some information that we see elsewhere in the uh, New Testament, the church becomes the antitype of what we had as far as the Old Testament tabernacle. You can imagine if you are one of the Jews, you can be out there as far as the outer courts and you can see the priests and everything, but would it have been unthinkable for someone to say, oh, we're just going to march right into the Holy of Holies? You'd have people grabbing you, slamming you on the ground and probably running you through with a sword. You just do not do that. I mean, this this is the place, this is the special place, this is the holy place for God. That was how they saw that Old Testament system. And that's how, we'll have a little bit more to say about this, especially as we get down a little further, uh, how we should see the church as well. It's unfortunate, and I think almost confusing, why a lot of people, when they talk about the church, they don't see it as the people, they see it as what? They see it as the building. We, I think, know the difference. We're well-versed in the difference, but sometimes we can fall into that same trap. Well, let's go to the church. Well, can you do that? Let's go to the church. Only if you're talking about let's go to who? Let's go to the people. But generally speaking, when people say that, let's go to the church, they mean the building. And we might, just for the sake of quickness sometimes, just for the sake of clarity, might use that. But if you can get in the habit of saying building instead of church when you're talking about the actual structure, that's helpful. You can show somebody that the church is not a building from Acts chapter 7, verse 38. The Bible says Moses was with the church in the wilderness. Put building in there. Moses was with the building in the wilderness. Somebody would be scratching their head and thinking, well, I think that's got to be a misprint in the Bible. Well, that would not be a very good translation. You've also got Matthew chapter 18 and verse 17. Jesus said, if you have an issue that can't get resolved with a couple people, then tell it to who? Tell it to the church. Now, can you imagine standing out there facing the front door and saying, well, here's the sin of brother so-and-so. People would think you're nuts. But he's talking about the people. Since Paul describes the uh, church dwelling in the church uh, with the present tense, that's in verse 16, Look at the end of the verse. He says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, the church is the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That is continuing action. That's telling us that God is among his people how often? All the time. He is always with his people. There are a lot of other passages in the New Testament which describe that. You have, for example, Revelation chapter 2 and verse, uh, Revelation 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is walking where? He's walking among his Congregations, walking among those seven churches of Asia. 
remember Matthew chapter 26 and verse 29? Jesus says, when you partake of the communion, I'll be where? I'll be with you, right? Why? Because he is with his people in the church. Under the Old Testament, if you were to go back, for example, to Leviticus chapter 15 and verse 31, you would find that if you um, did certain things, you deserve death. And one of those punishments, Leviticus chapter 15 and verse 31, was defiling a sacred structure. That would be why, like I mentioned a bit ago, you go into the most holy place, if you're able to get access to that, uh, if you did that in the Old Testament, you're dead. That's going to cost you your life. What do you think would happen today in some of the places like India? They've got their, their temples to the various gods. And one day somebody, you know, is maybe drugged up and crazy. And, uh, you know, the guards are kind of looking over here and they just decide to run in and start jumping on the altar and, and, uh, you know, grabbing the holy stuff and, and doing strange things with it. What do you think is going to happen to them? They're just going to say, well, okay, no big deal. When you're done, come out. They're going to get physical with them, and perhaps it's going to be a deadly encounter. Okay, um, well, not the best amount of time, but let's get as far as we can with this. Um, if the church is as we just described, it is a holy place, then what should the Corinthians have been doing that they were not doing? First Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I am of... All right, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas or Peter, I'm of Christ. How is that treating God's holy place, the church? Yeah, it was defiling it. It would be like going into a, a secular temple and, you know, you're just throwing stuff all over, you know, coloring on the walls, throwing some water on, you know, precious uh, paintings, tapestry, those kinds of things. Uh, you just wouldn't do that. You should have enough sense to realize that that is the wrong thing to do. And in the spiritual realm, People, if they decide that they are going to try to be spiritual church wreckers, you're wrecking what? God's temple. The church is the temple of God. And if people decide that they're going to tear it up, guess what? It's like going into God's house. I mean, I think most people today, if somebody came into your house and, uh, you know, they had magic markers, permanent markers, and they just start scribbling all over your walls. And then they decide that they've got a utility knife and they're just going to start slashing your furniture. And then they've got a baseball bat. And then they just go around and they see, you know, there's a, a lamp over there. Whack. And then they say, well, okay, you know, we've got a glass end table. Whack. What are you going to do? You're just going to say, well, that's fine. We're loving. We're tolerant people. We don't care. What are you going to do? Well, they need to be stopped somehow, right? Hopefully you can physically restrain them, get them out the door, and they're, they're, they're going to have to be dealt with. You know, that's just not acceptable behavior. What happens, do you think, when people decide that they're going to rip up God's house? Some people seem to have the idea he doesn't care. You know, God's that great, nice, loving, merciful God. How can people damage or destroy or wreck God's house? Well, let's look at it, let's, let's look at it from two perspectives. Can church wrecking occur by Christians? Yes or no? Can it occur by non-Christians? Yes or no? Yes. All right. So let's start with a non-Christian. How can non-Christians try to wreck God's house or temple, the church? Steer people away with other doctrines. All right. It could be false doctrine. Some people say, well, God doesn't care about what your doctrine is. Well, if you're taking people out of God's house, preventing people from God's house, he cares. What else? 
Persecution. All right. That would certainly be one of the things I read about in Scripture. You look at the book of Revelation, and that is the ultimate example of that. Uh, Rome did terrible things to God's people. And when you go, get over to about 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, God says the house is going to come down. I'm going to wipe out the entire nation. I'm going to bring you down. What was a power which seemed to control the whole world, God says, I'm going to whip you like you can't believe. And he did. How else? Persecution was the last answer. Anything else? How does the world try to destroy the church? Well, what about saying bad things about it? You're ignorant, you're dumb, you're stupid, you're racist, you're a hater, you're this, that, you're someone who has all these phobias, those kinds of things. That's how non-Christians often act. What about people who are Christians? How can they destroy the temple of God? First Corinthians chapter 1, it's no surprise that Paul begins with that. You're going in and you're writing on every wall, you're ripping up the carpet, taking your baseball bat and smashing everything that you can. God says, you better be careful. You're messing around with the wrong house. What else besides division? No other answers? All right. Somebody says, we're going to, we like this stuff out there in the world, we're going to bring it into the church. God says, you're going to bring it into my temple? And the Corinthians tried that. Things like fornication, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. We can't have that in the church. So sin, division, anything else? Well, what about bad attitudes and what about bad actions? There have been preachers who have done some bad things. There have been elders who have done some bad things. There have been you know, men and women uh, who were quote-unquote average members, uh, if you will. Uh, who have done some really bad things, and God says it doesn't matter. You know, you might be a preacher, you might be an elder, you might be someone who, uh, you know, does virtually nothing except try to destroy my people. And if that is your goal, or that's something that you do, watch out, because you're messing around in the wrong house. Anything that you want to add or ask before we shut it down? Okay, let's pick up. Uh, got just a little bit more to say about that. Um... Yeah, talk about the word destroy in verse 17 and how it's used next time. Thank you very much.